You're listening to Igniting Imagination, a podcast to spark the spirit within you from Wesleyan Impact Partners. Discover how you can join us in a spirit-led movement to bring about human flourishing grounded in love, generosity, and belonging by visiting ignitingimagination.org. Hello, and welcome back to Igniting Imagination. I'm your host, Lisa Greenwood, and joining me is my good friend and co-host for this upcoming season, Shannon Hopkins. Hi, Shannon. Oh, Lisa, it is so great to be with you. Shannon, it is always good to be with you. And thank you for saying yes and for doing this together. It's so fun. Of course. So as listeners, you all may remember Shannon from two previous episodes featuring her as a guest. And if not, I hope you'll go back and listen to our conversations with Shannon in seasons four and five. So Shannon is one of those people, it takes just about five minutes of being around her to experience that she is tapping into some source greater than herself. She is deeply spiritual and the most incredible networker and connector I know. (laughs) She will often connect us with a new person and we'll be on a call with them. And after we do a brief introduction, we'll say, so Shannon got us together, so let's figure out why, because <laughs> she had a reason. <laughs> and always, always there are amazing seeds that are planted. And it's not too much to say that through Shannon's connections, the kingdom has grown and we're all better humans because of the re- relationships that she's brought us into. And so Shannon, From the bottom of my heart, thank you for being you, for all the connecting that you do in this emerging spiritual landscape, Um, and thank you for doing this podcast with me. Oh my gosh, thank you. What an amazing introduction. And I mean, it's just such a privilege, Lisa. This was an opportunity. I just feel so blessed to be able to be in conversation with you over this season. Well, very fun. I always have fun when I'm with you, so I'm looking forward to it. So, okay, now on to this very special conversation with Dr. Margaret Wheatley. And I want to note that we're doing a couple of things slightly differently with this episode. First, we're releasing this conversation way ahead of the season that it will be part of because we just had to get it out into the world. We think it is that important and thought-provoking. and. Second, we we usually talk about the conversation and what stood out to us as part of the introduction before we play the interview. But in this case, we're going to discuss after you all hear what Dr. Wheatley has to say, because um, we want to invite you into how we're thinking about what she offers and its implications for our work. Now to introduce Dr. Margaret Wheatley. Meg Wheatley has been an influential leader and guide to many around the world and certainly to us in our work. And what a rare and formidable gift it is to spend an hour with someone you have long admired and learned from. And she is just as courageous and generous and wise as we imagined her to be. This is such a rich conversation and we cannot wait for you to hear it. But First, Shannon, will you give us Meg's bio? Absolutely. Dr. Margaret Wheatley is a consultant, senior level advisor, teacher, speaker. She's the co-founder and president of the Burkana Institute. She's worked on 
all continents except Antarctica, with all levels, ages, and types of organizations, leaders, and activists. Her work now focuses on developing and supporting leaders globally as warriors for the human spirit. These leaders put service over self, stand steadfast through crisis and failures, and make a difference for the people and causes they care about. With compassion and insight, they know how to invoke people's inherent generosity, creativity, kindness, and community, no matter what's happening around them. Meg has written 10 books, including the classic Leadership in the New Science. She's been honored for her pathfinding work by many professional associations, universities, and organizations. Her website is designed as a library of free resources, as well as information about products and her speaking calendar. You can find out more at www.margaretwheatley.com. Wonderful. Thank you. All right, here we go. And invite you to stay on. Remember, at the end of our conversation with Meg Wheatley, um, to listen to our conversation afterwards. And as always, we love hearing from you. So please email us anytime with your thoughts and ideas. You can find our contact information on our website, wesleyanimpactpartners.org. Let's listen to our conversation with Meg Wheatley. So Dr. Wheatley, Meg, it is such a gift to be with you today, and thank you so much for joining us. And I want to start by saying that uh, that we use your work all the time. Of course, always giving you credit, but it has been such a, a gift to us and has really formed the foundation for a good bit of our leadership work. And so there are two major concepts or themes that I want to pull on of yours that we draw on significantly in our work. And so, and just ask you to, to riff on it a bit, if you will. Can I just ask how long you've been using me? <laughs> Let's, how long have you been using me? Well, I will say that I've been um, here at the foundation for 12 years and have been using it since, mm-hmm. since the day I began doing this leadership work. I know that in our, we've been doing this leadership work for over 20 years. And Gil Rendell, a friend yeah. and colleague, really sort of formed and shaped our, our um, foundation for this leadership work. And so I know he's been, been using your work for over yeah. 20 years. Yeah. And I know you've been at it longer than that. So uh, what a gift. Well, I've been at it longer by that, than that, but I keep changing. Yes. So, yes. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, who do we choose to be has been absolutely foundational. But I'm gonna I'm gonna pull on a couple of concepts and just invite you into the conversation around them. Um, the first idea is that conversation is the currency of change, and that is a phrase that has been foundational to how we do our work. And every time we say it, people say, "Oh, yes, yes." It's almost like they they can uh, take a deep breath and say, this makes so much sense. And then there are those occasionally that we run into who say, really? Conversation's the currency of change? Isn't money the currency of change? 
And so I'm curious how you respond to that, but also really would love to hear you talk about where that comes from and and how you understand the, the concept of... Okay. So let me first respond to, isn't money the currency of change? If money was the currency of change with the trillions of dollars invested in changing organizations, in climate change, in governmental change, if money was the currency of change, we wouldn't be where we are. Amen. So I just like a Dr. Phil question. So how's that working? Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Nice. So where it comes from is it's in our DNA as a, a group herding species that we need to be together. Mm -hmm. And as we invented language, uh, one of my favorite biologists, Umberto Maturana, who passed a few years ago, said that it was the creation of language that allowed us to connect with one another and that love was born from the ability to connect Mm -hmm. through language. Now we're gonna fast forward to what's happened to our ability to use language to connect. Every indigenous tribe that I've ever read about or been with sits around in circle to when they have to talk about Mm. something. They don't know Robert's rules. They don't know square tables. They sit basically together. And I remember reading a long time ago of a, I think it was in Brazilian rainforest that there was a tribe, it had only like 30 people. They had never been touched by Western colonialist culture. And they were observed to, it took them maybe three to four hours to get in enough food and take care of their needs for the day. And then they sat around talking to each other. And I've always wondered, so if you're with 30 people forever, what do you talk about? (laughs) But it showed me the absolute genetic programming of our need to express what we see. And once we had language and it's not all, you know, verbal, it can be, you know, hands and movements and many ways to communicate, but that's what we do when we want to be together. So again, these are human needs, human capabilities. But where we are now, and this I actually want to test out with you, Lisa, is people don't want to talk to each other anymore. People are mostly afraid it will lead to some big argument or they'll just get totally upset at what the other person has said. They'll get triggered easily. We all get triggered easily these days. Or we do a quick quick scan of the person and we think, no, I don't want to talk to that Mm -hmm. person. And so what I'm tracking is basically this is inherent, innate in us. We need to be able to talk together, to reason together, to sit together without rank. Mm -hmm. We had all those processes. We had them down cold. How to have post-conversations, how to sit in council. Now we're learning 
I'm certainly learning about indigenous ways and writing about it of when something goes wrong, you bring the community together. You don't isolate individuals, but look at where we are with the group. You know, social media has completely distorted relationships and made hate, death threats, Mm. all of that just commonplace. When I live in Utah, when Senator Romney announced his resignation, he also said that he's paying $5,000 a day to protect his family. Wow. This is tragic, untenable, and yet an indication of the this is the age of threat and um, people feel threatened. And then when you speak out or you take a stand, you get these threats that are just beyond all comprehension to me. So what I want to ask for your congregations is what's happening, how easy or difficult it is to bring people together in conversations where people are patient, respectful, Mm -hmm. And curious about each other because we still know the recipe <laughs> for hosting great conversations that do lead to healthy problem solving that lead to in better relationships and a feeling of we truly are in this together but what I see in the large landscape is we have a serious problem but I'd be interested in everyone thinking about this is listening and your own experience. So uh, Meg, you jumped ahead and answered a question I was going to ask about the essential ingredients, right? Patience, trust. I'm with you. Like I just recently um, had a trip to the States and, and I was watching it. I think you're right. This is an age of threat people and people are worried about all kinds of things. And so feels like they're not slowing down to sit with one another, to listen deeply to one another. And I'm wondering, is that because we've lost some of that essential ingredient? Have we lost curiosity? Is fear too? No, it's because it's a very simple neurobiological explanation for this. When we feel under threat, we instantaneously, autonomically, retreat into the reptilian brain, which is facing, is about our survival. So when we're under threat, we have no choice. We are not conscious human beings. I mean, in, in my newest book, which we can talk about called Restoring Sanity, I talk about how can we be human beings being fully human? Well, you can't expect fully human behavior. You can't expect consciousness, compassion, love, imagination, vision when people are scared because that's pure self-protective behavior. So there's a a remedy here. Don't expect anything uh, about all these beautiful human capacities we have. Don't expect anything until people have calmed down and we've reawoken Mm. their inherent human capacities that all come from grace, spiritual connection, and our frontal lobes. Scared people cannot talk to each other. They defend themselves. No, I totally take that such truth, right? I guess I have a follow-up question, which is, 
is also something that's necessary that we must slow down. It's like the first thing to do in a congregation, in a meeting, in a, a offering of any kind of, like I offer courses online. The first thing I focus on is, can we all just settle in, mm. be grateful that we have this opportunity can we all just calm? I mean, it's calming our nervous systems. It's reigniting our the better parts of the human brain. And it's also truly opening to spirit. You have to do that before you can expect any good human behavior. We're like, we're human animals at this point. We're desperate to self-preserve. And the other thing that's important to notice is when we are in the the primitive brains, we have an instinctive fear of anything that looks different. This has been proven with tests that if you show people every tenth of a second, you show them an image of a person. When you put up a person who looks different, in our case, it would be dark skin, the amygdala lights up like, oh, threat. Strangely, that's overcome if the black or a person of color is wearing a baseball cap from your favorite team, like fan loyalty transcends color. Wow. <laughs> that's not completely crazy yeah. we are, yeah. by the way. But anyway, we have a need when we're in fear to just relate to comfortable others, no strangers absolutely nothing strange. So we can overcome this because we still have full human brains. And in this case, you have spiritual grounding with people. So the first thing is to just settle in and enjoy the fact that we have time. So this would go under slowing down, but it's, it's actually deeper, Shannon. We be grateful that, look, we be grateful to each other. We all took the time to be here. And let's each hear a story from the other. So we start to realize, oh, there's a lot of commonality here. Yes, we're all human. I mean, these things always worked well in the past. Now they're an absolute necessity. I so appreciate yeah. the way that you're bringing in the neuroscience into this and what's happening in the room. Because I, I think you're right, as we live in this age of threat and when we have lost the, mm, I don't know if it's the, the, it's not just the capacity, because I think we have the capacity, but we've lost maybe the training or the practice of sitting down together, of being curious about each other, of, um, okay. which is, we've lost the practice of co conversation and, and how important that is. Yes. And uh, what I'm giving is a richer explanation of why yes. it's become so hard. Yes. That it used to be you would come in, you'd socialize, maybe you'd have a moment of prayer or greeting, and everyone would be ready to talk. Mm -hmm. But now people come in and you have to reawaken mm. these inherent capacities. And we do that. It's a physical issue we're up against, yeah. and then it allows people to be together, to reason well, to vision well, to have imagination, to develop compassion and respect for one another. 
and to also connect with spirit. You don't connect with spirit from fear. I mean, we do. The most prayers, as Annie Lamont once said, most prayers are help, help. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> to pray. Right. Exactly. So, so I'm going to pivot us a little bit because the other idea that has given us really the foundation and the vision for the work that we're doing right now is your two-loop theory that you developed with Deborah Fries. And, and just for our listeners, we'll put a link in of the image into our show notes so that you can access that. But I would love, Meg, for you to talk a little bit about that two-loop theory and and then we'll we'll maybe do a little and bit I'm deeper. And I'm going to take it into into the present Great. moment. Great, perfect. What is on the two loops now is why I'm focused on us developing the role of warrior for the human spirit. So the original two loops, which is oh a good thirty years old, um, and has been used everywhere, describes that when the major paradigm or the major culture is has is going through its final stages. All civilizations have stages like we have stages and collapse and death is the last stage of a civilization. We're in that now with global culture actually. But the two loops created a role for those who would give birth to the new in the midst of the degradation of the old. It originally had what people still want to believe is true, but I'm going to crush those dreams right now. (laughs) It had had the belief that if we got together as radicals, rebels, in strong communities together inside the disintegration of our culture— that we could give birth to the new. And when things got really tough, people would have us as places of being together in new ways and giving birth to a new culture and civilization. Well, the bad news is that cultures, civilizations have life cycles and they don't create, the people who create the new are now, at this time, with extreme climate destruction. We do not have the necessary conditions to give birth to more just justice, less poverty, more equity, more inclusive, we're all one species. I still hear my fellow speakers and authors writing about, well, we're all human, you know, why can't we come together in our humanity. Well, we don't have those conditions. If you look, how many ethnic wars are now going on with increasing intensity? I mean, it's gone up a factor of, you know, more than double just in this year, the number of ethnic um, conflicts and migrants, pure people just having to flee. What we can do is in the midst of the old, I no longer feel we are giving birth to the new, but we can be the best human beings possible. We need to embody the finest qualities of compassion and kindness and generosity and creativity. 
and we need to come together. This is where community, you know, the, the slogan of my institute, Burkana Institute, is whatever the problem, community is the answer. So community, we need to come together. We need to strengthen our local communities. I am now calling them islands of sanity. And we won't succeed in reversing any of what's been set in motion with the planet, with the planetary systems, with the oceans, with the air, with the animal species extinctions. We can't reverse this. We just have to prepare to be the best we can for all the destruction we've already created and what's ahead of us. So this is where I no longer, I know you're interested in the role of catalyst. Now I want us to be the embodiment now of the very best I want us to be memory joggers for people mm. like, oh, this is what it's like to be around a calm and thoughtful person. Oh, this is what it's like to engage in rational conversation where I really feel closer to you because of the quality of the exchange, the listening. People need to know that no matter what the future brings. I mean, I now will go into my preacher. You can... You can preach this if you want, <laughs> but it's what is the meaning of a good human life? What is the meaning of a good human life, period? It's not what we're dealing with right now in this age of destruction and loss and threat is people feel completely upended, abandoned, uh, lied to, about what a meaningful life was, as well as what our politicians are doing, keeping reality from us. So it's really important for those of us with strong spiritual faith to answer the question, what is the meaning of my life? What would Jesus do? What did Buddha teach? What do all the great saints throughout time, what was their life about? Well, it was about service, right? It was about not worrying about death. It was about self-sacrifice. And when I know this to be true, I know there are also historically always people who rise, a small group of people who rise to fulfill this role as the historian Sir John Glove said, raising the banner of duty and service against the depravity and despair of their time. So I created Warrior for the Human Spirit training, peaceful warriors, spiritual warriors. Our only weapons are compassion and insight. And that leads to incredibly meaningful, joyful work. But it's not about fixing anything. Mm. It's about how we can be together in an intensification of our love for one another. And this is why your work is important, because you have the spiritual grounding to start with. You know, when I talk to corporate leaders, I have to see what's there in terms of their faith in human people, in human beings. And are they willing to work for that. I use a, a quote on what is faith 
from uh, Levinas, who is a Holocaust survivor, great, great philosophe, philosopher, French and Romanian. And he said, faith is not a question of the existence or non-existence of God. It is believing that love without rewards is valuable. Mm. And that's why I have shifted to training anyone who's willing to be dedicated and undertake the discipline of training to be this small group of people. And you start in a good place. Mm. I think that's true. As a when we start from a place of faith and believing that we're always becoming I mean, that's the, that's the good news of the faith, right? Is that we are, in fact, always becoming more human, more alive. Yeah, and then the ultimate victory is over the flesh or mm -hmm. the materialistic demands. I mean, you know, I could give you a lot of material for some right now. <laughs> and you have. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> you know, when I was ministers years ago, before I was, acknowledging I'm giving you material uh, there was one woman minister who said oh I could preach that that's where I learned the yes. phrase, so. <laughs> that'll <laughs> preach exactly but it's, all, it's, it's actually what I want to say to all of us we're not coming out of this climate destruction is not only in our face but will increase exponentially in the past do you know that Guterres, the Secretary General of the United Nations, said just last week in one of his speeches, he said, we humans have opened the gates of hell. Mm. He speaks the truth. Yeah. And so mm. we, with our deep experience with the human spirit, with sacred, with divine, mm -hmm. We know how to be together if we really understand where we are, which is why I insist that people first understand where we are. We used the phrase a minute ago, memory joggers, that we, people need to be memory joggers. And I really love that. And it, I wonder how, and you used it to talk about, you know, people will remember this is what a person of compassion looks like or a person of reason. But I also think about, memory jog memory jogging happens at funerals right that actually when somebody's gone we re we remember and actually the deep work of grief and so i wonder if you could talk to the role of grief in this moment because i think your two loop theory speaks to it that there's always this dark night things fall apart the job of leaders in, in that moment but is there is there right. something in this and I talked about, I'm glad you brought up grief for a few reasons. In in the two loops model, there is the role of hospicing, mm -hmm. right? Getting as gentle a death, but I would change that to as value rich and understanding before you die mm -hmm. that you then want to transmit what was really important. You've all had those experiences with the dying, I'm sure. So this culture, which never dealt with death and never wanted to know about grief. I mean, I was at public events where something terrible had happened and the leader would say, well, we'll grieve and then we'll get on with it. We would not allow grief to touch us. 
And now it's the big thing. I mean, I was just seeing a podcast come up of an author who said, it's, it's what's missing from our culture is the ability to grieve. I think what's missing from our culture is love, actually, and caring for one another. But so where I am with all this grief is, yes, and there is a path out of grief. And the path out of grief is service. It's using this deep, rich, dark, emotional state to find meaning in life, right? Mm. You think about, uh, I was just telling a friend again of a story I remember of a woman whose son was killed and she just took to her bed in the deepest depression and despair and she just wouldn't get out of bed until one morning her, her deceased son's dog came and forced her out of bed. And she then realized, oh, dogs could be healing for other people who are depressed. So she started this whole movement now of bringing, you know, they bring dogs in now in all disasters mm -hmm. to help people, to comfort them. There's even a Minneapolis airport, they had dogs mm -hmm. <laughs> before COVID and pianos you could play. So <laughs> I want us to recognize that death is a natural part of life, yeah. which also helps when I'm talking about civilization collapse. Yeah, it's part of the cycle of life, people. So are you gonna hold on, grasp, take what you can, which is what most people do, get distracted and deny it? Or are you just gonna accept it? Enormous grief and despair for the amounts of suffering that are and will continue to happen. Enormous levels of sadness for what's been lost, especially if you're tuned into the planet mm -hmm. and other species. Mm -hmm. And then why do we want to open ourselves to this level of deep, deep searing grief? Well, we don't wanna go down with it, right? We don't want to go into a dark night of the soul and not come out. So this is where I have found that in my own training of leaders and activists as warriors for the human spirit, we, we find meaning in service and we define then that service is different. I'm not creating a bold new innovative organization. I'm working with the people who are inside organizations who are being battered and bruised by over control and lying and change policies. I want to strengthen them so not so that they can be better workers, but so they can be better human beings and offer themselves. Because you know, service is the antidote to despair and grief. You create something of value and it helps another person. And we all know this over and over again. I just want to redirect our attention that that's our work. And people will only know that if they feel it from me, you know, if they feel it from someone who's willing to sit and listen to them or not bring anger and violence into a meeting or is just trustworthy for their presence. So. That's, that's our responsibility and it takes training because it's a very hostile 
aggressive, fear-based environment out there. My gosh, yeah. you know, how often do we get triggered? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. So I'm hearing this shift. I mean, there's so many shifts we could talk about, um, you know, as you talked about two-loop theory, but also as you think about what the role of, of leaders, individuals are today. And, and I would say, you know, we've talked about it in terms of they're innovators and they're doing the new thing. And I'm hearing you say what's most important right now is embodying, embodying being wholehearted, being fully human, and whatever the that language is that is about our own transformation and witness, but also over and over again, you say the answer's in community. Like, it's not that we do this alone. Like, I, I'm embodying right. this, this peaceful warrior spirit, but but I'm actually doing that with others too. And so I'd, I'd love for you to talk about that and then maybe connected to that or maybe yeah. a follow-up, I don't know, is what's the role of organizations in this? Like, as we try <laughs> to help, you know, whatever is yes. emerging or, or help people be their most human, human, <laughs> right? Um, so, okay. I'm going to throw all that out there. <laughs> well, I'm, I think with the focus on innovation and creativity, yes. But what we are focused on is how to prepare our community, hmm. whether it's an online group of friends, pioneers, people, activists, whether it's a team, whether it's a congregation, that that is where our best human qualities are needed to be resourceful, creative, resilient, compassionate, loving, kind, all of that, right? What that takes is a different work for leaders. So my new book, which will be out in March, but which I'm offering a course on that starts October 5th, is called Restoring Sanity, Practices to Awaken Generosity, Creativity, and Kindness mm -hmm. in Ourselves and Our Organizations. So I am focused on specific practices to create the conditions so people can be generous, creative, and kind. That's my definition of sane leadership, by the way. A sane leader has unshakable faith in people. So we gain that through our experience, not through what someone told us. So it's real faith, not a belief system. People can be so much better than they're showing up right now. That's where it started. But it's the leader's role to, to create the condition. So I said the first condition, settle down people, get people together to just relax and then give them meaningful work. And so this is a book of practice that I've never written one like this before of how you bring people together, how you create community, what are the practices for solving problems that actually depend on diversity and need equality and need deep respect and curiosity about each other. So there's very important work to be done. I've just narrowed the focus, the scale down to creating 
am sticking by this concept of islands of sanity. So in the midst of this very toxic sea, we cannot swim in it alone. We're all being affected by it. I mean, again, just how often do we feel hopeless or sad or grief-stricken or angry? We can't do this without companions. Wonderful spiritual phrase, companions for the journey. Mm-hmm. And there are specific practices that will not only bring us together, but keep us together on behalf of, of being imaginative and creative in solving problems of like food or water or a new technology, whatever. We still need that, but the it has to be in this protective space mm. of an island. But the island is inclusive. It's just we're exclusive of all of these terrible dynamics that are mm. creating fear and threat and driving us apart. So for me, it's a very logical evolution. <laughs> I don't know how it sits with you three, but it's very logical to me. Yes. In response to what's happening in the world, you know, I've had people who say, well, Meg, you seem so dark and depressed. And I just say, have you noticed what's going on? <laughs> you know, have you lifted your gaze and just seen what's going on? In this well, world? and I would say quite the opposite that, yes, there's this, um, and, and you, you kind of name it in the, in your book, who do we choose to be? There's a, there's a facing of reality. Like we have to face it and name it. Um, but where you, you know, you you say, and then claiming leadership, but then you say the work is restoring sanity in the midst of this. And yes. And so uh, to me, it feels hopeful that you haven't just stayed with the naming of reality, but you are leaning into exactly the restoring of sanity. And I have used that language of islands of sanity so much because, you know, we have those pockets in our lives and those people and where you can look at each other and say, this, this is sanity in the midst of a lot of insanity. And I'm so grateful to you, my dear friend, for being part of my understanding of what it is to be human and to yeah. experience love. And, and I, so, so I find you to be hopeful even in the midst of all that is well, around. Or useful, maybe. Yeah, well. You know, I, I do play, you would have read this in Who Do We Choose to Be, but, our, you know, when we're asked, are you an optimist or a pessimist, and you establish only one good identity is you have to be optimistic, right? Positive thinking. And by looking at a glass of water, is it half full or half empty? And I just said, well, a warrior looks at that glass of water and says, oh my, there's water. Who needs it? Yes. And how am I going to get it to them? Nice. Right? Nice. So it's a very important, you know, if you don't face reality, you don't know how to be useful. You can keep tilting at windmills. You can keep saying, well, we'll just fix my organization and everything will be fine. You know, as leaders, it's a terrible time to be a leader because we're working with people who are afraid of one another in, in a, such a hostile environment of lies and, and such a dark future mm. awaits us. 
but it's no darker than when people faced World War II. And, you know, we know the people we admire from that terrible time who were there for each other, who gave service, who gave shelter. So Islands of Sanity, I'm now describing them as places of possibility because we can reawaken our creativity, our full human spirits, and also their places of refuge and sanctuary. And a Christian author recently wrote a book. I don't know her name right now, but there's a concept in nature called refugia, which are places like within a volcano eruption or within a floodplain or within a fire where life is still maintained. Mm. So in the midst of absolute destruction and devastation, nature knows to create these places of possibility and life. Refuge. So that's what I love it. It's a refuge. Refugia in the Latin. That's a wonderful book, by the way. I will, that's part of the title, Refugia, especially for Christians. It's talking about a new Christianity, a new way of being. Beautiful. And it's the same as Islands of Sanity. I'm with Lisa. I find you, I'm with Lisa. I find you incredibly hopeful and, and also offering hope to communities that actually this moment when we actually settle in with one another, there will be creativity. And if we face reality, this is the moment to solve real problems. Like we don't have to play at it anymore. The world doesn't need us to tilt at windmills or like, right. But we, there's real problems to solve. But the problems we are capable of solving are at a much reduced level of scale. We cannot solve water issues, food justice issues, poverty, misogyny, racism. We can't solve those at the level of scale where they should be solved. We can't. They're not being solved. They won't be solved there. We solve them in our communities. Every community sets about solving them in their communities. Then what happens? Don't get hopeful. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That hope has a limit. (laughs) Shannon has just pushed it. (laughs) I offer as hope. Yeah. Um, I've written a lot about the problem with hope, our addiction to hope, Mm. which is we deny reality by thinking if we just get it together, we'll Mm. make, we'll fix everything. We'll make it all good. Or it's in the original two loops model that there are these discrete communities that when they come together, will achieve critical mass and new structures and ways of being will emerge. But what's happening now is we cannot stop what has emerged. Mm. These global systems of greed and corruption and the elites taking everything for themselves and not caring a bit about people, that's in the pattern of collapse. It happens in every civilization. It's enraging to see it happening here, but boy, is it happening, right? So we create these healthy little refugias, these refuge, places of refuge. We do connect to other places of refuge. Mm -hmm. Life will continue, who knows for how long, 
but we can be the best we can be, whatever our time left on the planet or however much time the planet gives the human species. It's getting darker day by day. So when Antonio Guterres said, we have opened the gates of hell, this is a man who knows, who sees. Mm. And we, and so you can look at this and say, well, that's not true. We're going to do this. We're going to invest $5 billion here, $100 billion here. Now, let us take that and be the best saint-like people mm. we can be, really, in the image of the divine. Yes. May it be so. That's who I'm going to be. Thank you. Yes. Yes, may it be so. Yes. What hope does is it creates a set of expectations. And so when those expectations aren't met, and you're seeing, I'm seeing it, so many activists, they just go down in despair and cynicism and rage. So they're destroying their inner well-being mm. and they're destroying any possibility of a, a, <laughs> a good life. Mm. A well-being is the right word here. Uh, the younger activists now are saying, well, the hope is for, in our actions. But even that is related to outcomes. So I've, for many, many years now, written a lot about hope and fear come together. You can't have one. You can't hope for a certain outcome without the fear that arises or the despair when you fail. And we are failing at all these large-scale attempts at change. It's going to continue. There's a biological, scientific explanation for it. But anyway, I want people to be focused on doing their very best. And then there's joy in the doing. And then whatever happens, it's out of our hands you know, mm. in most cases. Mm. But there's so much joy in doing meaningful work together as a community and learning about one another and exploring possibilities. And what I've learned from years of working in community is if you're together and you try something and it doesn't work, you don't get despairing. You just say, okay, we got to come up with another way. Try again. You get creative. I mean, the real source of creativity here is everyone being engaged in wanting to solve yeah. the problem. Yeah. Enormous creativity is available then. Enormous levels. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. So, we're asking all of our guests this season uh, a final question, and it actually comes from the last chapter in your book. And, um, and so in the midst of all that we've talked about and the realities that exist in the world and, and the leadership that you've been called to and been a part of, uh, what do you want to be remembered for? I was once asked this question in the 1990s, to which I replied then, she brought more possibility into the world. And I think now a friend of mine, <laughs> We're designing our tombstones years ago, and it was just like, oh, well, we tried. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> I have no need for legacy. I have no need to be remembered. But I do have a need to say to people, I tried my very best. Mm -hmm. 
to awaken our human spirits. But I'll tell you what's on my tombstone now, even though I will never have a tombstone. (laughs) But but I I want to go out trying my very best through whatever means I have available to Mm. awaken people to the beauty of our human spirits. Because it's phenomenal beauty. But my newest tombstone reads, we were together, I forget the rest. Oh, oh, there it is. Isn't that beautiful? You can preach that. Beautiful. (laughs) But it's so powerful, isn't it? And I was with a group of elder Catholic sisters. I was speaking at a university uh, where they were part of the university. And I said this uh, to close my talk. And then at lunch, a group of these sisters who were well into their 80s, as so many sisters are now, Catholic sisters, um, and they called me over. They said, Dr. Wheatley, we remember the first part of that. We were together, but we don't remember the second part. (laughs) (laughs) You said, great. Mission accomplished. Yep, you got it. Yeah, thank you so much just for your work in the world. I mean, it has definitely impacted me and all the communities that I've been a part of. It's been delightful to be with you. Thank you just for your work. You know, I can't always speak so truthfully about the spirit, so it's always a liberating experience Mm. for me. That's nice. In a community of faith. That was an amazing conversation, and I cannot wait to jump into this with you, Shannon, as we think about the ideas and images and challenging words that Meg gave us. We're going to spend a few minutes pulling on it on some threads from this conversation. And again, listeners, if you have any reactions, ideas, thoughts, please do email us. We would love to hear from you. Shannon, where are you in this moment? <laughs> well, oh my gosh, I just I still feel just incredibly grateful for this experience, like to sit hmm. um, with her for an hour and you know, and somebody she was just so generous with her thinking yes. and her creativity and just felt like, you know, she was just so kind to us in the way she had a conversation with with us and yes. Um, and there were things that she said that have really challenged me. I mean, mm-hmm. really challenged me, you know, the, and, and then there are things that I thought there are some places where I disagree and I'm like, wait a minute, I, I can't buy that. And then there are other places where I'm like, oh yeah, I've had that wrong. How, how's it shape what I'm doing now in mm-hmm. a different way? But, oh gosh, what a rich, what a rich conversation. Yes. Yes. So let's let's jump in. I want to I want to start with this at what I think is one of the most significant shifts that she raised and that is the two loop theory which we have used so much to focus on the shift happening from the dominant system to an emerging system and how important it is to spotlight 
innovations and innovators and network them and and um, and knowing that when you network innovators that they organize for change and she is really adjusting her thinking there and updating it if you will and saying you know you, you can't be, we can't be thinking about global change as if everything is going to get better because she's saying it's not going to happen so yeah. she's doubling down on the islands of sanity, if you will, that we create and focus on what we can change in our own selves to be more human, but also and sort of embody this um, this spirit, uh, what she calls the uh, a warrior for the human spirit, right? Uh-huh. Um, embodied leadership, if you will, uh-huh. um, but also creating islands of sanity and I mean, we're going to have to live with this a bit and say, what is that? What are the implications for us as leaders and as as ones who are trying to help leaders lead, right? And oh. in our role. And so um, what were your reactions to that? What stood out for you? Oh my gosh. I, I, there are a few things that stood out for me, honestly. And I think you jumped to this piece that's like really, really the one of Russell, right? Like she says- yeah. we've got to face reality. If we don't face reality, we can't be useful. And that we can't, like the real problems that we're facing can't be solved. Like that's really at scale, at the scale they need to be solved. Yeah. That we can only solve um, problems in our community. And I, I really struggle with that, to be honest. Um, But, and I, but then I think which. I really think she's saying is we've got to settle down and together when we start really caring for one another, seeing the problems at, at the ground level, that's also maybe all that it's like when we really pay attention and tend to that work, Mm -hmm. that's what's important. And we can really grapple with that. And I think she's also saying, I think she's, I wonder if it, if it actually helps us lower the expectations Mm -hmm. of and I wonder how it ties to the what she said earlier in the episode about people feel really upended about what a meaningful life is. Mm. Like you want to do work that's meaningful. You know, I mean, I'm a, uh, you know, I'm a Gen Xer. I grew up, you, you were going to be the world changers, right? Um, <laughs> and, and here we are. And here we are and trying to <laughs> make a difference in the world. But it's like, well, maybe it takes, some pressure off that we the work is still meaningful the work is still good but we've got to just do what we can do with what's at hand and so that's one thing that's yeah you go I've got another thought around the death piece that's really stood out for me yeah so it's interesting to hear you say that because um in some ways it takes the pressure off in terms of the global scale, but it actually puts the pressure on locally. Like in some ways we, we do this sort of work avoidance where we're like trying to do things to scale, but we're not paying uh, attention to what's right here at home. And the same kind of both and happened with hope. Like in some ways uh, she, she really, I mean, she pushed (laughs) uh, um, and said, no, don't be addicted to hope. Like we're addicted to hope. Don't be too hopeful. But at the same time, 
the hope comes in we can restore sanity in our own corner of the world and with our own yeah. people, right? And whoever that is and and the the neighbor we don't know and that, you know, whatever it is, right? And so there's a don't be too hopeful, but here's the hope. And, you know, anyway, so it, it it's this both and. Well, and do we need a new language? Because she also talks mm. about possibility, like, yes. right? Like I think possibility can sometimes be exchanged for hope. I mean, uh-huh. I'm not a theologian, but I'm like possibility. Like, yes, yes, is a good, it's a something's changing. It's possible to do something. Yeah. Right? I do want to. I do want to talk about you know in the two loop theory, it was always about creating this really gentle death as quick as possible for the mm. as the old the right. So it's yes. uh-huh. yeah, it's a gentle death, and she changed that as well. And it's not as radical. So I think it that it took me a while to really reflect on it. But she says it's not the gentle death. It's about a va- as value rich and understanding before you die. Mm. Like, what mm-hmm. do you need to transmit is what's, what she said, that, yeah. right? Yeah. And I wonder what that means for the work of institutions and churches right now yes. as well. Yes. It's like that really understanding what has been and the why, the why we exist. and Yes. What's the deep well? What do we have to draw from the deep well of tradition as well as what can we let go of in order oh. to to live into the future. And so we're always asking ourselves, what is ours to do? And and I mean that from an organizational standpoint, from, from Wesleyan Impact Partners and Texas Methodist Foundation, what is ours to do? But I also think that's a question for us as individual disciples, what is ours to do oh. in this moment um, as leaders, what is ours to do, but also for the church to be asking this question. And this is connected oh. to, to the piece of there are parts of our church that understandably and rightly are, are dying, being phased out, that we're letting go of, but what is the value-rich aspect that we do not want to lose, right? Oh. What, is, what are the deep truths and core purpose and values that we don't want to lose and, and want to actually double down on and, and be fully embodied in what is moving oh. forward? So I, I'm going to be living with and revisiting this conversation oh. to say, what is ours to do in this moment and that's for me as an individual and as a leader, but that's also in our work. Yeah, me too. This It's like, I mean, I mm-hmm. am really wrestling. I, You know, her words really encouraged me for the work I did in the last season of my life, you know, like mm-hmm. more than, mm-hmm. and it's like, oh, how much of that do I need to bring forward? Like in the way I yeah. think about community and life together, and purposeful work together. Yeah. But I did think that, so I, I agree, I'm just going to be wrestling with it and sitting with mm-hmm. her words. But I loved, she did say this is, there's different work for leaders to do, right? Mm-hmm. I think yes. she used that phrase and that work is to create condition, create the conditions mm-hmm. for people to be generous, creative, and kind, right? Like, And I feel like that's the work, like if we kind of just thinking again about the two loop, that's the work for both the new and the old. Yeah. Whereas I think we've, I wonder if with the work of innovation, it's been about the new thing. And she says, 
it's not about innovation and creativity just for the new thing, but it's innovation and creativity to prepare our communities. Like that was her friend. And I was like, Oh no, there's a, there's a nuance difference yes. there in the way yes. she's talking about innovation and yes. that the work is, is to create the conditions for people to settle down. That's before. so good. And then it's for leaders creating the conditions to settle down and then to, then to do meaningful work together. Mm-hmm. That's a very different role of leadership. Yeah. In this time that she's talking about. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you, you've, are, you are alluding to this, but this, um, you know, she talked about how we're living in and operating out of threat mode, mm. you know, which of course puts us into our reptilian brain or however you want to talk about that. And, and that, so when you say we've got to help people settle down, it's like, we, we can't, be in community together or be our best selves if we can't get out of that threat mode and, um, and talked about the value of, um, moving towards service that when we're serving others, we're able to not just name our grief, but get out of our grief, not just name our anxiety and sense of threat, but get out of that place that when we turn toward service, so many good things here and so many threads that we could pull on. I um I want to, you know, invite you all again to to reach out with your thoughts and comments. I hope this is an ongoing conversation. I want to end with a quote from from Meg Wheatley. So hear these words. And and they are indeed words of hope and possibility, which I think are re- it's a really good note to, to end on. Says one who is addicted to hope. <laughs> so um, here, sh- listen to her words. I hope we can reclaim conversation as our route back to each other, and as a path forward to a hopeful future. It only requires imagination and courage and faith. These are qualities possessed by everyone. Now is the time to exercise them to their fullest. By the grace of God, may it be so. Igniting Imagination is a production of the Learning and Innovation Team at Wesleyan Impact Partners with excellent editing support from Truthwork Media. Follow us on social media at Wesleyan Impact Partners. Visit our website at ignitingimagination.org and share episodes with friends and colleagues. Our hope is that these conversations can spark imagination in your context. I'm Blair Thompson. On behalf of all of us at Wesleyan Impact Partners, thanks for listening.